Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Lucy Linden. So I met a man, I got pregnant, I got engaged, and when I, in that order. And when, <laughs> that and more. But before that, I just want to tell you again about the Hedonist podcast. Hedonist, it's a podcast that's hosted by my friend, Grant Irving. It's a podcast about the sex party revolution. Well, I'll tell you, I once tried to host and curate a sex party. And boy, am I glad that other people do that instead of me. (laughs) So anyway, reporter and host Grant Irving spent months hearing about the different facets and factions of that sex party world. People who envision a future where sex parties make for a safer and more loving world. The only issue is that when sex combines with capitalism and human complexity, it makes things tricky. Subscribe to Hedonist on iTunes iTunes and hear about the sex party revolution that just may be coming to a warehouse or mansion near you. Hedonist is a Brickhouse Projects podcast, and it's supported by Field, the dating app for couples or singles who are more than a little open-minded, and Zero Spaces, a porn site run by the pornographer Stoya. So, you know, this podcast is the real deal. That's Hedonist, the podcast about the sex party revolution. Subscribe, rate, review on iTunes, just search H-E-D-O-N-I-S-T. Also, these days, you can get practically everything you want on demand, like this podcast. You can listen whenever you want when it's convenient for you. So why are you still taking trips to the post office to mail letters and packages when you can get postage on demand with Stamps.com? With Stamps.com, you can access all the amazing services of the post office right from your desk 24-7 when it's convenient for you. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, using your own computer and printer. And then the mail carrier picks it up. Just click, print, mail, you're done. Couldn't be easier. We've used stamps.com at risk and the story studio for years now, and we love it. And right now, you can use Risk for this special offer. It includes up to $55 free postage, a digital scale, and a four-week trial. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage and type in Risk. That's Stamps.com. Enter Risk. Now here's the show. kids this is risk the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share this is chris pritham well i forgot to say who i am i'm kevin allison this is chris pritham behind me now chris emailed me with this track and i said mr pritham i'm putting it on the mickey ficken show folks we are calling this week's episode live from orlando these are three of the stories that were shared at our orlando our first ever show in orlando florida and it was quite an experience as you will soon hear but this is also the week the week that the risk book hits the stands the pre-ordering process is over 
by the time you're hearing this, but now we enter the most crucial week of all. First week sales are the most important numbers. If you are ever going to get this damn book, you should get it before July 21st. And that will count toward making or breaking the book. Now, of course, the next few weeks after that are also very important. Essentially, we just need a big launch. So if you haven't bought it yet, do definitely try to get it before July 21st. And we will continue singing people's names at the end of the show as long as people let us know they got the book for indefinitely. Um, you should call your bookstore. If you have an independent bookstore, call them and ask them for the book. You should already be able to find it at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, IndieBound, Walmart, Target, Powell's. Call your library. Ask your library to get it. Definitely leave great reviews for the book. Leave lots of great reviews on Amazon and Goodreads and wherever else you can find that people are sharing reviews. Take photos of yourself with the book or if you see the book out in public and share them on social media, share this new Wall Street Journal article about the book with people. Now, we do keep being told that Amazon reviews are especially essential. So just start spreading the word that it is out there. The audiobook, if you prefer audiobooks, holy shit, it is so good. It's so funny because, you know, I have to listen to audio all the time. I'm, I, I'm hyper aware of when audio is compelling and holding my attention and not. And damn, I've been listening to the audiobook and been like, holy fucking shit. I have heard these stories dozens of times, but these voices doing the narration are so great and the stories are so phenomenal. It just works beautifully. So just do whatever you can, <laughs> because if we sell a ton before July 21st and sell a lot more in the first few weeks after that, we might make the New York Times bestseller list and this tiny little independent podcast, this labor of love might finally, after almost 10 years, start reaching a wider audience because of this project. It's all at theriskbook.com. Now, in a little bit, we are going to hear an extraordinary story from Michael Soviero. But before that, a story by Victoria Dim. She has a compilation of poetry called Class Clown, another one called When the Walls Cave In, and she also teaches laughter yoga, which I think sounds a lot more down my alley than every other kind of yoga. I think I'd be the teacher's pet in a laughter yoga class. But this story is very serious and quite beautifully shared. This is Victoria Dim with a story we call One Shot.
I'm running, running, running. I'm 15 and a half years old, and I'm running, 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 and there's this sound. It's whizzing sound. It's a buzzing sound right past my ear. And I'm running, running, running. Basketball practice was canceled. The coach got sick after last period. And I don't feel like doing my homework. My mother works in Oakland at the University of Pittsburgh. And every day she drives me to and from my all-girls private preparatory school, Winchester Thurston, in Shadyside. We live about 20 minutes away in a suburb called Fox Chapel, a suburb of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And basketball canceled, so I don't want to do my Latin homework and wait for my mom. I feel a bit rebellious. I feel devilish. I feel like I want an adventure. It's a nice day outside in March. It's beautiful. So I think to myself, I'm going to go upstreet, even though I'm expressly forbidden to go there. I can walk to Walnut Street. It's only about 15 minutes. I can people watch, and I can window shop, and my mother will never know the difference. So it's 1970, and I'm 15 and a half, and I decide to roll up my uniform black watch plaid skirt to a more fashionable length. Voila, a mini skirt. I start walking, and it's super, super warm and I take off my uniform sweater, it's got the thistles on it, and I wrap it around my waist, and my below-the-waist length hair gets tangled in it, and I fish it out and finger comb my hair. And I see a woman walking towards me, and she has a graying basset hound on a leash, and she nods that I can pet it, and I pet the dog. I love dogs. This is a great day, it's beautiful. And when I get to Walnut Street, I go into Schiller's Drugs on the corner. And there's this silver tray on the glass counter, and it's full of perfume testers. And I choose Chanel number no. five. And I spritz a little on my wrist, and I spritz a little on my neck. And I feel sophisticated, and I feel grown up. I walk out of Schiller's and I walk into the variety store and there's these low tables where all the kids can play with the toy samples and the novelties. And it's crowded. Mothers and their kids are in there and there's parachute men floating in the air and there's kids drawing with four colored pencils and they're trying on hand puppets. And the dinosaur and the squirrel are in dialogue. I walk over to the Stretch Armstrong, and I stretch his arms. I walk out of the variety store and into Rollier's Hardware, past the whizzing, buzzing, grinding key machine. And I'm looking at wooden spoons and metal spatulas. When he comes up to me, he's an older man, about in his 20s, and he says, hi. My name is Roger. And I say, hi, my name is Vicky, because that's who I was in 1970. And he says, beautiful day, huh? And I say, yeah, it's beautiful. And he says, he doesn't live too far. 
and would I like to go get high? And I think, boy, oh boy, oh boy, I love to get high. It's, I've gotten high before, well maybe only twice, with my best friend Sarah, but I love, love, love getting high. And I think to myself, Roger, he looks like my friend's older brother, Marty. He's got that same kind of wild, crazy hair that's all pulled back in a ponytail. He has kind of a laid-back sense about him. And his bell-bottoms are far out. <laughs> right behind Marty is this clock. It's a Rollier's hardware clock, and it says 3.40 p.m. And I think to myself, yes, perfect. I can make it. I can go get high. And so I say, sure, let's go get high. <laughs> And we walk down an alley, and we walk down a side street, and he's making small talk with me. We're talking about how warm it is for March, and oh, I'm in for a treat. He's got this primo weed. It's all buds. And he asks me about music, and he says, do you like the Beatles? And all of a sudden, we stop in front of this row house. It's gray-sided. And it's one of those that are typical in the city. They've been chopped up into duplexes, an apartment on the top, an apartment on the bottom. We walk up three steps to the porch. He opens the door, signals for me to go in. And when I walk in, I smell the slightly oregano aroma of already smoked pot. I looked to the right, down a hallway, and I see a bright kitchen at the end. In front of me is another hallway to what probably I assume is the bedrooms. And then there's a loud noise right behind me and I turn around and I see Roger closing the door and he's locking all these locks. The deadbolt, the chain lock, I count seven locks. I start to feel a little uneasy but I try to be cool. And I walk into the living space, and there's this couch to the left. It's big, oversized, and in front of the couch is a wooden table, a big wooden table. And on the table is some baggies of pot. And then on the table, I see a gun. <laughs> I've never seen a real gun before. It's silver, super shiny, and there's notches where the bullets go in the barrel. And I freeze. And Roger picks up the gun. He puts his fingers on the trigger, and he points the gun right at me. And he says, we're not going to get high. You're going to undress, and I'm going to take naked pictures of you. And I look at Roger, and he wasn't laid back anymore. He had this wild, crazy look in his eye. And I start to think, I want to cry, but I'm really frozen. And I'm looking down the barrel of a gun. And I think, I'm dead at 15 and a half. And then there's this ringing noise. It's a phone ringing down the far hallway. And Roger puts down the gun, and he goes to answer the phone. And I am looking at the gun, and I look at the door, and I think, this is it. This is my only chance to escape. And I unfreeze as quickly as possible, and I go to the door, and I 
unlocked the deadbolts and I unlocked the chain lock and my hands are shaking as I try to unlock the knob lock and I get that open and I open the door and I'm running, running, running down three stairs. I'm running, running. I'm 15 and a half and I'm running, running, running and I hear this noise. It's a buzzing noise. It's a whizzing noise and I'm running, running, running. Roger had taken a shot. That was the bullet rushing past my ear. He missed, but only by an inch. I ran down a side street. I ran down an alley. I ran back to Walnut Street and back to school. And when I got to my mother's car, I was still sweaty and unwinded. And I got in her Oldsmobile, maroon Oldsmobile Toronado, and we're driving back to Fox Chapel. And she says, how was basketball practice? And I say, fine, mom. Basketball practice was fine, mom. And I think, should I tell her? Should I tell her about Roger? If that was his real name. Does he know where I go to school because of my uniform skirt? Will he come one day and try to finish the job? And then I think, if I tell my mother, I'm gonna probably have to talk to the police. And then she's gonna know that I disobeyed her. And then she's gonna know that I hiked my skirt up and they'll probably say I was asking for it. And then I'll have to tell them I wanted to smoke pot and I'll have to tell them I already have smoked pot. And then my mother pushes in an eight track. It's the Beatles, Revolution. And I say, can we please listen to Frank Sinatra instead? She nods, yes. And I smell it. It's the after work cocktail that's masked by cigarettes. I change the cartridge out. I push in Frank Sinatra, these little town blues. And I decide, no. I just have survived a gunshot. I would never be able to survive my mother's alcoholic rage over this. You see, my mother is a violent drunk. She beats me with her fist, her hairbrush, her stiletto heels, her belt. She throws me downstairs. She threw me through a wall. She's pulled my hair out and screamed in my ear. <laughs> and once, she took a diaphragm out of her nightstand and pointing to a hole in the cracked dome, said, this is why you exist. I was a mistake in my mother's eyes. I closed my eyes for the rest of the ride home, and I thought about when I get home, after we pick my brother up, my younger brother, at his all-boys preparatory private school, I will make her one or two Manhattans while I'm heating up the frozen TV dinners in the oven. We never ate at the dining room table. We always ate at these metal TV trays in the living room, and almost every night she'd pass out on the couch. Sometimes, we would watch Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In or Brady Bunch before she would pass out. 
but usually she would banish myself and my brother to our rooms, sometimes whether we were finished eating or not. I was hoping that tonight was gonna be a good night, that she'd pass out and there'd be no injury. My mother was sick and Roger was crazy and so it's no reason why I would ever want to get married or have a baby. But I did meet a man who wanted to marry me and who actually wanted to have a baby. And at 32, I got married and I really, 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 really wanted my child. And who knew, being a mom was really fun. It was warm chocolate chip cookies and tickles and laughter and the toys were amazing. We ate at the dining room table every night. And my daughter's favorite chore was setting the table. We did homework together, we did arts and crafts together, we read stories at bedtime together. And I got a second chance at childhood. I grew up with my daughter. I taught her about stranger danger. I taught her never to go with anyone, even if they said mommy and daddy had sent them. And I told her never to take food or, or candy from anybody. Never to go off with a stranger and without telling a grown-up, even if there's the cutest puppy in the distance. We both love dogs so much. And never, 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 ever get into a car or a van with anyone you don't know. One night, my husband and I were reading in bed. We were about ready to turn off the lights and go to sleep. And my then 12-year-old daughter comes running down the hallway into the bedroom and she's sobbing in terror and full tears. And she says, please help me. Mommy, I'm so sorry. Mommy, mommy, I, I, I'm scared, I'm really scared. Please don't be mad. And I take a Kleenex and I dab her nose and I, I wipe away the tears and I say, I promise I won't be angry. And she says that she has opened up an email account at the library, an AOL email account, and she has been chatting and posing as a married woman looking for action. And th this married man wants to meet her. And she's really terrified that he knows where she lives. And he's coming to get her and she's having a night terror and she's shaking. And I thinking to myself, you what? You opened an email account? When you were supposed to be doing your homework at the library? You are sex chatting with a married man? And then I stop. This is my daughter's gunshot from a computer. This is my daughter's Roger. And I grab her and I hug her and I cradle her and I tell her, I love you so, so much. I'm not angry. 
I'm so happy that you told me it's going to be all right. I love you. I love you. We'll, 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 we'll call AOL tomorrow. We'll cancel the account. He doesn't have your street address. He has your email address. He doesn't know where you live. I promise you're safe. I love you so, so very much. And I stroke her hair, her long, below-the-waist-length hair, until she's calm. And that night, when I lead her back to her bedroom, I realize <laughs> I'm so grateful for my gunshot. And I'm so grateful that I survived my mother's alcoholic abuse. <laughs> and I'm so, so very grateful that I became the brilliant mom that I never had. Hi, everybody. It's Frank Sinatra. You know, uh, I did a lot of cool things in my life when I was alive, but I never sang any Beatles songs. I'm going to remedy that right now. A little medley from the White Album. Why don't we do it in a row? Why don't we do it in the row? How you doing? Why don't we do it in the row? Ho, ho, ho. Why don't we do it in that row? Oh, no one will be watching us. Why don't we do it in the row? Just a question. Happiness is a warm gun Oh, happiness is a warm gun yeah. So I stow my tray table, I turn off my electronics, and I put my seat in its upright position. A smile comes across my face as the wheels land. I instantly go into a daydream in the song, Hooray for Hollywood, dun 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 Hollywood, is playing in my head, and I have this daydream of, of being on a sitcom and being interviewed by Jimmy Kimmel, and I've made it, and all those years of of acting classes and late nights at comedy clubs and doing sketch shows in front of five audience members have actually paid off. And then all of a sudden, boom! Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for riding JetBlue. It's a sunny 75 degrees outside and welcome to Los Angeles, California. And I'm snapped back to reality. I have just landed in Los Angeles Yes, that wasn't what was really happening, but I was following my dreams. See, 10 years ago, I was working at this West Village bar in New York City that was this very confused uh, West Village bar. Um, it had dead animals that hang on the wall. It was called 1849. Uh, had a, like a gold rushy theme, and during the day, it was very like um, happy hour, sports bar, cheap chicken wings. 
And at night, it was like, laser machines, smoke machines, DJ Hot Pockets, spinning pop hits. And I was like, what the hell? But it paid really well. And it was Fleet Week, and there she was. Uh, this tall, dark-haired, olive skin, just, she looked like olive oil. Uh, she walked up. Very classy, but she had a, a nose ring and this, this blonde streak in her hair, which gave her edge. And, uh, and I saw her from the other side of the bar, and she was uh, surrounded by sailors. I mean, that's pretty much everybody's dream, but for her it wasn't. She seemed uncomfortable, so I figured I'd go in and save the day. Uh, so I, I went in with my best romantic comedy lead, you know, and I swung in and I was like, how you doing, darling? I don't think she's interested in you fellas. Here's an apple martini. I don't know, terrible drink of choice. And I thought I really like, look, I was single and that was a really cheesy line, but it worked. And, uh, and she was interested in me and she started talking and she took her attention away from the sailors and we started connecting and she leaned in and asked me my name. I said, my name is Michael. And she said, her name's Mary. And that she's only in New York for, uh, for the summer as an, for an internship. And, and she lives in Florida. And that's where her home is. And I said, well, uh, you know, why don't you give me your number and we can go out on a date? Because this girl was the, uh, if, you, if my friends asked me, like, what would be the perfect image of a girl, this was her. And uh, I was like, I'm not going to let this one run away. We had such a connection. You know, we started talking. She was a writer. I was an actor. Uh, she had dreams. I had dreams. And, uh, you know, her, and then we, we, so she said yes to the date. And, and we went on on this date. And I was just sweating the whole time during the date. And she still liked me after that. And uh, New York City's hot in the summer, okay? It's not like Florida. It, well, it is, yes. But uh, so, so uh, we were talking the whole time. And we were just like, we got lost in each other, and, and then we stood in front of her dorm room, uh, and I, I asked her if I can kiss her, and she said yes. And, and then after that, she said yes to a lot of things. Uh, she, she, hey now. Uh, <laughs> she did say yes to that, um, but she also said yes to becoming my girlfriend. She yes, said yes to uh, falling in love with me. She said yes to moving in. She said yes to becoming my wife. And uh, she, at the same time, said yes to uh, starting a family. But see, that's when her dreams changed. Because at the time, she was aspiring to be a writer, and I was still doing the acting thing, but she was like, hey, I need a safe job. And so she went back to school to get her master's degree so she can teach special education. So I put my job on hold, which is fine, because I can still write and, and do these things and, and have a stockpile of like, because in my mind, I was like, I'm going to be famous, and it doesn't matter. And she was like, well, you know, maybe we should plan and, and think about talking about having children and this and that. And I was like, I created this game called Baby Roulette. And I was like, I don't want to describe it to you. You guys probably know what it is. But I eventually lost, or I, I won, <laughs> I guess, because uh, Lena was born. Uh, about a year after we got married, and then Giada was born 17 months after her. Um, so our family was started. So Mary's dreams from writing had changed, and she had kept this safe job, but things in New York started to get harder because at the same time, I was still trying to do what I wanted to do, be a writer, be an actor, and follow my dreams, but at this, at, at this now, I have two girls in my house, these two little amazing, beautiful children. The greatest thing is, I mean, we were damn good parents. Uh, our our 
like like schedules work perfectly together because she would go to school and I would get up at six o'clock in the morning just coming home from a four o'clock shift, you know, perfectly. And I would wake up and with the kids and I would just relive my childhood through their eyes. Like Lena would just dance for hours. Like she would just shake her hips and, and spin in, in a circle and her blonde hair would just look like the sun. And it would, I'd watch Mickey Mouse Clubhouse and I'd be like, hot dog, hot dog, hot diggity dog and Doc McStuffins. And you know, and it was this fantastic thing that be able to relive that Giotto who was just, you know, pretty much like seven months, eight months old at the time. I had this cow uh, bubble machine that used to shoot out bubbles and I learned the magic of bubbles. I mean, come on, like if you put bubbles in a, bubbles, exactly, you put bubbles in a room, it puts a smile on everybody's face. Giotto was like a seal flopping around to the ground trying to eat them, you know, like, every, like feeding her fish. So, this is what my days were like, but my nights were spent in comedy clubs and my hours started getting less of sleeping and I started getting really tired and I started doubting myself and I started questioning everything and I started realizing like, what the hell am I doing? Am I, am I going to be a, a, a bartender for the rest of my life? Am I gonna only get two hours of sleep forever? Like, this is not the life that I wanna give my girls. I wanna be an awake father. And so I decided that I would have a conversation with Mary about, hey, we should move. And she was like, great, let's move to Florida. And I was like, what? Why do you want to, that's not where, hold on. And she was like, no, we should go to Florida. And I was like, oh, uh, that's not where I was going with this because that's her dream. See, when you have kids, new dreams get created. And her new dream was to move to Florida and live with the cousins and, and be in, around her family. And my dream was like, hey, let's go to LA because that's where all my friends move to and they're booking these jobs and getting bigger gigs and getting on television shows. And, and if they can do it, why the hell can't I do it? So. Uh, I convinced her and she said yes again. This yes was not the strongest of all the yeses that she's ever said. So that's where I'm at. Uh, I walk out, uh, out into the LAX, into the sun. Uh, I buy a car and I find a house in Glendale. Mary's in Florida uh, for the summer with the kids while I'm preparing everything to move there. Uh, I constantly call her and tell her on the phone and we're talking and I'm, I'm saying how amazing everything's gonna be, how perfect our life is going to be, how all of our dreams are gonna be fulfilled in LA. And then I go uh, to pick her up a couple months later and I'm at arrivals and Lena's there spinning and dancing with her hips and Giada's clung to Mary and I see this redness in her eyes and she gets into the car and it's just quiet, pure silence. And we're driving, I put on Hotel California. I figured I'd set the mood. I wish I knew what that song meant before I picked it. <laughs> and she's sitting there and I knew she was crying and I asked her, is everything okay? And she looks at me, well, I'm, I'm just tired. I'm just, it was a long flight, I'm exhausted. You know, I, I, I miss home. And I stop and I go to interrupt her and I try to cut her off and home, this is home. But I don't say it, I just bite my tongue and we drive. And we go to our place and the next eight months are absolutely terrible. She hates it there. There's nothing about this place that is great. She gets a job teaching special education kids, but they're a lot more violent, a lot more aggressive, and she can't deal with it. I find a bartending job, but I'm not making as much money as I could. I'm trying to be a parent, but I'm also trying to be an actor. She's trying to just survive, and we just go through the motions. Our marriage is slowly falling apart, and there's just silence always, every day in the house. I look at her one day, and she looks at me, and she's defeated. 
And she says, I can't do it anymore. I can't teach these kids. I can't, I have to give up. And I put my two weeks in and I didn't want to tell you. So it just made things even harder. We're paying $500 a week for childcare because our schedules weren't as good as it was in New York City. And we started to run out of money. And then it happened, the bomb drops. I'm in the house and it's New Year's Eve. There's fireworks going on outside and there's people playing and it's five seconds till the, the kids are sleeping in their bed and five seconds till the ball drops and, and I look at Mary and I'm thinking in my head, I, I need to have a conversation with her, four seconds and you can hear noisemakers, three seconds and I, I go to stand up and she looks at me awkwardly, two seconds and she leans in, one second, you've sabotaged every fucking thing since the day you've landed in LA. This was my time. This is when I was supposed to fucking do something. And you know what? It's you that fault for quitting your job, for the fact that we have no money, for the fact that I have to fucking work two jobs now and I can't even write. I have no time. This was supposed to be me. I helped you go back to college. I put you through college. I didn't know who I was. There's a thing called depression and it just fucking takes over and it just, it's an out of body experience. The only way I can explain it best is it's almost a symbiotic feeling if you know who Venom is in the Marvel universe. I felt like Venom has taken over my body right now and I'm just spitting tar and disgust at my wife. And she looks at me in the eyes and she starts crying and she silently squeaks out, it's over, I'm done. I'm leaving, I can't be here anymore and you need to figure out what the hell you want. So a week later, she packs her shit up and she leaves. She takes the kids and goes back home to Florida, and there I am, sitting in this house alone by myself in Glendale, California, with my thoughts and this fucking uniform of venom that I'm wearing of depression. I'm just constantly having this discussion with myself. Oh, you don't need to live anymore, do you? Nobody fucking cares about you. Nobody, nobody loves you. Nobody wants you to be around anymore. You just fucking throw yourself off the Grand Canyon. Why don't you just do that? No, that's crazy. That's an, it's insane. Why would I want to do that? Why would I go to the Grand Canyon? Like, come on, I've never been there. That's, that's an insane idea. Just do it. Just go. Just drive to the Grand Canyon. So I'm in the car, and I'm driving to the Grand Canyon, and I actually feel okay, and I feel like I'm ready that I don't have anything left to fucking live for. And all of a sudden, I hear, pull over. <laughs> I was like, fuck, I'm being pulled over. <laughs> and I got pulled over. And I go to the side of the road, and the cop comes up to the window, and I say, sorry, officer, uh, what am I, what's going on? Was I speeding? And he was like, no, uh, uh, there's a lot of drug trafficking in your area, and uh, your car fits the description. I'm like, what? This is insane. Like, drug trafficking right now? Wait, I have a mission I'm on. Hold, huh? So I get out, and I say, yes, you can search the car. And I'm standing on the side of the road, and I've got goosebumps, and I don't feel anything. I know it's sunny or cold or whatever, and, and I can feel the hair on the back of my head stand up every time a truck passes. And this officer is just walking around, going through all my shit. 
And uh, he finally turns to me and goes, you got a lot of stuff in here. And I was like, he looked like Burt Reynolds, um, <laughs> which is a terrible description for him because I really wished I did remember, but he was very kind. And I said, yeah, there is. And he goes, are you, are you, yeah, it was the mustache. And he goes, are you, are you moving or going on a road trip? And I say, uh, road tri- uh, I'm moving. And he goes, yeah. And I go, well, and then I just didn't stop. And I just started talking and I told him about the whole eight months of my life and how I landed in LA to follow my dreams, to fulfill my passions, to do what I wanted to do, how I have these two beautiful girls that are waiting for me, that are missing me, but uh, that I'm like, if I keep going, there go my dreams. And if I keep going, I'm going somewhere else. And I didn't get into detail about what I was about to do. And he goes, well, where are you going next? And I, and I say, the Grand Canyon. And then we stop talking, and I get back in the car, and he hands me back my license and my registration, and he comes over to the window, and he goes, uh, well, son, uh, enjoy the Grand Canyon, but don't go doing anything stupid. <laughs> I was like, universe. <laughs> so I keep going, and I park, and I walk, and I walk, and I walk, and the gravel on my feet is getting dusty and I get to the highest ledge and I'm standing there at the Grand Canyon. And I don't know if any of you have ever been to the Grand Canyon, but when you get there, it is a sight. It was quiet, still. There was these deep caverns, spirals that just pointed at the sky. And the whole time I'm thinking to myself in my head, I hear that cop's voice, don't do anything stupid. But I don't know if it was his voice or if it was the fact that I was able to just unload on somebody that didn't have any judgment and talk to somebody about the struggle that I've been going and dealing with, that venomous part of me. And then I hear it again. Come on, you pussy. Just throw yourself off. Do it. Don't listen to what's going on in your head. Do it. No one loves you. You've got nothing. And I say, I got, I got my fucking girls. And I stop for a second, and I give myself some time, and the day gets longer, and turns into night, and my shadow just goes further out into the Grand Canyon. And I hear this family on the side laughing, and it kind of breaks me out of whatever was going on. And I turn around, and I get back in the car, and then I head to Austin, I had to New Orleans, to Tallahassee, and then to Florida. And then I'm standing there at my in-law's door, holding the doorknob, saying to myself, if I turn this doorknob, there go my dreams. And that fucking voice, don't do it. And then I did it. And as soon as I opened up that door, these two little fucking girls came running down the stairs with blue eyes and blonde hair. And they grabbed my legs and the weight of their bodies and the smell of sun and sweat. And I said, fuck. Because I almost gave up on them. You know, I had this crazy notion that moving to Florida was giving up on my dreams. And that was the end of everything. But honestly, it's just been the beginning. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, naive little me. 
asking what things you have seen and you're vulnerable in your head you're screaming your way to your dead creatures veiled by night following things that aren't right and they're tired and they need to be led You're screaming your way to your dead But give me to a rambling man Let it always be known that I was who I am We're beaten, battered, cold My children will live just to grow old But if I sit here and weep I'll be blown over by the slightest of breeze And the weak need to be led And the tender are carried to their bed And it's melancholy fair And I'll be damned if I'll be found there This is Risk. This is Laura Marling behind me now. And we just heard from Michael Soviero. Michael is a teacher at Box Improv in Tampa. He teaches storytelling and improv there. That's at boximprov.com. And before that, we heard a little interstitial with uh, the comedian Jim Meskimen doing Sinatra singing the Beatles. Now I want to tell you a little bit about my Lisa mattress. A quality night's sleep helps you recover from distractions faster and prevent burnout, make better decisions, improve your memory, and overall make fewer mistakes. To design a better mattress, Lisa leveraged 30-plus years of experience and hundreds of hours of testing to develop the perfect mattress for all body shapes and sleeping styles. Lisa's mission is to provide a better night's sleep for everybody. Through their 110 program, they donate one mattress for every 10 they sell. That's more than 26,000 mattresses and counting. Lisa strives to leave the world better than they found it, but it doesn't stop with mattress donations. Together with the Arbor Day Foundation, Lisa plants one tree for every mattress they sell and are committed to planting one million trees by 2025. I have a Lisa mattress and I'll tell you, it is the best I've ever had. My sleeping has improved. It's just the right amount of comfort and firmness and I just absolutely love it. Don't miss these summer savings. Get $160 off a Lisa mattress at lisa.com slash risk. That's L-E-E-S-A dot com slash risk for $160 off Lisa a better place to sleep. Now, for our final story on this week's episode, we're going to hear from Lucy Linden. I always talk about how much we love it when someone takes a risk and tells a story on the show who has literally never gotten up on stage and done anything like that before. Uh, Lucy is not a performer. She's an attorney. So she was just a fan of the show who heard me calling for pitches and responded to the call and we're thrilled to have her on. Here is Lucy Linden now with a story we call Last Call. 
When I was 24 years old, my parents flew down from Ohio to help me move. This was typical. They helped me do most things at 24 years old. My mom came down with my stepdad. We went consignment store shopping. She bought me a new red couch because she said I deserved it. When we were done putting all the dishes away and getting the pictures hung, she suggested that we walk next door to a bar restaurant, which she said would be my new stomping ground. So my mom put on her leopard print sweater, per typical. She put the lipstick on, put it on her cheeks, rubbed it in, because that's the way my mom liked to look fancy. And we walked next door. She ordered a martini, so she suggested that everyone get a drink. And there's a live band. And at first she was having fun and she was talking. And then by martini number two, she was slurring a little bit. By martini number three, she was trying to dance on the bar. So by martini number four, we're waiting for her saying, mom, we need to go. And it ended with me standing on one side of her, my stepdad on the other, walking her home. She was telling us to stop and slow down and trying to go back until we finally wrangle her in the door. She goes over to her suitcase, which is a wheelie bag, and bends over to get her pajamas out. She falls face first, she hits her face, she pops up with blood dripping down from her nose and her mouth. She looks as shocked as I am by that. She goes into the restroom, puts her pajamas on, brushes her teeth, pretends that scene didn't happen, and crawled into my bed and went to sleep. I was stunned but it's my mother I get in the bed with her I go to sleep in the morning I wake up and I'm looking at her like you do when you're a little kid just staring at her she looks like my mom she has the floral nightgown on she's snoring like my mom she smells like perfume and I'm mustering up the courage to talk to her about last night so I'm thinking in my head of what I'm going to say with her eyes closed she says What are you thinking about? She she could always feel me staring at her, something I did my whole childhood. And I said, Mom, last night was bad. That can't happen. And she opened her eyes and she looks at the ceiling. The scab on her lip is closed. And she says, I know, I really have to just drink beer and wine. (laughs) Liquor's just something I need to give up. This was not the conclusion of this conversation I had imagined in my head while I was staring at her, but I was proud of myself for saying anything, so I thought, well, that's good. We get up, she behaves herself, we have a good day. The next morning, I drive her to the airport, I come back, I'm tidying up, and I go to take a glass of water that was by her nightstand and put it in my kitchen, and I just for some reason took a drink of it, and it was vodka. And I realized that this is worse than what I was thinking. My mom had always been larger than life. She was loud, she was fun, she grew up in the 60s, had her young days in the 70s. By the time I was born in the early 80s, she really loved the 80s. She was into all of it, the big hair, the big colors, and she liked to be the life of the party. And I thought she was so fun too. She was blonde, she was tan, I wanted to be just like her. She was a fun mom, she would pick you up and if it was raining, she would open up all the windows in our house and turn on our stereo system and say, wanna dance? We'd go outside and dance in the rain. She would pick my brother and I up and take us to amusement parks after school just for the heck of it, just on a Wednesday. My mom was a secretary, she went to college at night, but she still always found ways for us to have fun and we had a bond that couldn't be broken. My brother would always say that we were like links on a chain 
that we were always together no matter where we were because no one could break us. Then when I was in college, my mom decided to get gastric bypass surgery. My mom was a big woman. She was big. She was loud. She could drink and hold her liquor with any man. She loved to eat. She loved to indulge. She did everything to the limits. And she told me that this gastric bypass surgery was really going to improve her life and make sure that she was around forever. So I thought, well, great, good. She gets this done. And the thing is that when you get gastric bypass surgery, that your stomach becomes the size of an ice cream scoop. But yet she was drinking like she had always drank, and that didn't change. So then the alcohol affected her differently. It became to a point that if my mom called after 8 p.m., I didn't answer because I knew I was just gonna have to repeat myself the next day. I would have incoherent voicemails that I couldn't make out a word of it. But then she would call me in the morning, chipper, fine. She succeeded at everything in life. She always had a good job. Her house was immaculately clean. She was well put together. So it didn't seem like a problem. Then, as she continued on, she appeared to seem more unhappy. So I thought, well, a great way to fix this is I'll make her a grandmother. I want to have a baby anyways, and this will be something that changes her life, and she'll have something to focus on other than drinking, and she'll stop with the drinking, and she'll focus on being a grandma. So I met a man, I got pregnant, I got engaged, and when I, in that order. And when when I told my mom, this information, within six weeks, she moved from Ohio to Florida. She had a condo, she had a job, and she was ready to be a grandma. When my daughter was born, my mom was in the room. She held my hand. She cut my daughter's umbilical cord. She demanded on looking down at the prime moment before my child's being born, despite me protesting. And she said, I've seen it before. <laughs> what can you do? And she did love being a grandma. She definitely loved the idea of being a grandma. She loved to dress my daughter in matching leopard print outfits with her. She loved that. (laughs) But when it came down to the everyday work of it, meh, she kind of wanted to drink. When I became pregnant with my second daughter, my mom announced to me that she had received a scholarship to go to rehab. She was very pleased with the scholarship and she thought this was a very good thing. I was taken back by this. I didn't really know we were at that point, but I had never been around an alcoholic. What I knew is what you see on TV, people laying in a gutter, people with brown paper sacks. My mom wasn't that. So, okay, if you think you need to go. And she went. A thing you should know about my mom is she was 70% deaf and she liked it that way. (laughs) She didn't believe that she needed to hear all the information people had unless it directly affected her. She had hearing aids, she just refused to wear them because she told me once, do you know that paper makes noise? I don't know how you all walk around with all this noise and focus on anything. So when she got to rehab, she called me on my oldest daughter's first birthday and said, do you know that they're telling me that I can never have a drink again? I was like, yes, yes, mom, that's kind of the point. You were there, they medically detoxed you, you're staying there for 60 days. That's the goal. Huh, all she said. Right then I knew she is not buying into this. She's missing the vast majority of the information they're giving her, and she just is really on a vacation. (laughs) She comes home from rehab, 
and she tells me about everybody's problems there. So-and-so was addicted to heroin and their wife sent them here and blah, blah, blah. So-and-so smoked the crack cocaine. (laughs) And by telling me these stories, she was also trying to emphasize to me, see, I don't have a problem, they have a problem, they're terrible. She gave all of these people her personal cell phone number. She started spending all her time talking to these people. She sent one lady money who had left her husband for a homeless man. It just became a bad scene. But that's how my mom was. She liked to help. She liked to help everybody except herself. Within a month of her being back from rehab, we go to dinner. She orders a drink. And she tells me, I've decided that I'm going to keep drinking. I'm just gonna drink in moderation. Now, the daughter part of me just focused on blind obedience, right? This is my mother, I am her daughter, she tells me what to do, not the other way around. She brought me into this world, she's made sure I've got it to this point, so who am I to tell her what to do, and if she wants to order a drink, well, that's her decision. Then the adult, grown-up part of me says, eh, no, you went to rehab for a reason, this is obviously a problem, So maybe you should try to see that through instead of giving up so quickly. But I are on the side of being a baby and saying nothing. But it kept getting worse. She couldn't drink in just appropriate situations. She had to drink all the time, which that becomes during lunch in her car or in the morning before work. It becomes to where when we go to the aquarium and they check your bags, At the aquarium, I have a brand new baby and a toddler and my mother, and they open the middle part of her purse and there's a box of wine in the middle of it. And the security guard says, ma'am, can you put that back in your car? And she just says no, and I pretend to look away because I don't want to shame my mother in line at the aquarium. And they let her go through. Then about when my daughter was two years old, I get a phone call that my mom's been rushed to the hospital by an ambulance. My mom was 59 at the time. I rush to the hospital, I'm freaking out, and they inform me that my mom has had a mild heart attack because her liver enzymes are out of whack from the alcohol, which is causing her heart to overwork, and that she is going to die if she does not stop drinking. I walk into the room where my mom is. She has tattooed eyebrows, she has permanent eyeliner, her nails are perfect, her teeth are perfectly white, she's perfectly tan, and she is dying from alcoholism. I look at her and I tell her, mom, you're going to die if you don't stop doing this. And she looks at me and says, then I'll stop. And we both know that's not true. And we move on. She gets released from the hospital. I go there a week later for a dinner, like my mom always made. There's a glass of wine sitting on the counter in a wine glass. And she looks at me, looking at the glass, daring me with her eyes to say anything. And I say nothing. I say nothing because I was scared. And I went on with the dinner and I didn't mention it. About three months after that, I get another phone call that my mom's in the hospital. So now this is becoming more of a routine. And I say to my husband, you know, I'm gonna go to the hospital, but I have two kids under three years old. I have a job, I have a house, I have a husband, and I'm not staying there. Like, I'll go check on her, but that's it. Then I'm coming right back home. Tough, right? Big words. I get to the hospital, my mom's sweating, she's shaking, and I think she's just going through detox. My stepdad leaves the room, and I decide this time I am going to say something. And I look at her, and I say, 
I am so angry with you. I am so mad that you would do this to me. Why can't you love me more? Why can't you love your grandchildren more? Why can't you love us enough to help yourself, mom? And she looked up at me and said, every time you look at me like this, you make me wanna kill myself. And it was the first time that I realized that I was hurting her as much as she was hurting me by judging her every day. The hospital let her go home. She was retaining water and they said she would start physical therapy and I was going to come over that evening. I got there and she was wearing a black long dress. Her hair was perfectly done. Her makeup was perfectly done. And my stepdad said that she had spent hours getting ready for me to come over, having to take breaks because she was so wore out. But I looked at her and I saw my mother. I thought we are in the clear. We talk about what we're gonna do moving forward. And she tells me, if I feel like drinking, I'm going to call you and you're going to tell me that you love me and I'm not gonna do it. And I think, well, at least we have a plan. I'm not trained in any way, I'm in no professional, but at least you're gonna do something. And we also talk about how we're gonna go to AA meetings. Our first meeting we were gonna to go to is the next day. I'm getting ready to go, getting ready to pick her up, and she calls and says, Bobby, I can't. And I'm thinking she's saying I can't because I don't want to. Because I'd just seen her dress the day before, and she said, I'm sorry, I just can't, I'm sick. I get a call that night that she's back in the hospital, but this time she's in the ICU. The doctors tell me that her liver is now in complete failure. The way they described it to me was that it was working, 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 chugging along, chugging along, chugging along, and then her liver enzyme said, I quit. And once your liver quits, it doesn't start again. So I'm looking at this 40-something-year-old doctor and asking him, well, what can we do next? Can she get a liver transplant? And he's told me, people like your mom, alcoholics, they're not eligible for things like that. You see, you have to be one year without alcohol before you can even get on the list. And your mother's what, a couple days? And I looked at this man who was looking at my mom as just some alcoholic, and I just wanted him to know that the person who's dying in that room brought me into this world. The person in that room I love more than anything, that is the person I would die for, so could you treat me with a little dignity and please try not put her in a box that I've never been able to put her in? It was decided that she would go home and die with quote unquote dignity, and hospice would come in. Her first day home, my stepdad and my stepbrother took her to her work to where the seven people that worked for her, she got to tell them each goodbye and told them each a personal story about something that had really made them special to her. She had the whole office crying. That night we went to our last dinner. I had to hold her with her arms on my shoulders as we walked into the restaurant. She ordered a cheese pizza and a glass of white wine. She looked at me, she took a sip of it, and stared at me dead in the eyes and said, it doesn't taste good anymore and pushed it away. The last day my mom was coherent, she told me, well, I guess alcohol really can kill you. And at that moment I realized that she did, wasn't buying it till the very end. She had thought that this was all a bluff, all a game. She didn't know that this could really happen. 
That night, we laid in our hospice bed, watched an Ohio State game, and I tried to memorize how she smelled and memorize the veins on her hand. As we were laying there hugging each other, holding hands, she said, this is nice. And I thought, it, it is. The next day, she couldn't talk anymore. Bile was leaking out of her nose and mouth. I had to take scissors and cut her nightgown off of her just to try to get her clean and sponge bathe her. The person I loved more than anything in the world, I was yelling to let go. And I told her, I'll see you soon, but you don't have to stay here anymore. I will be with you soon. She opened her eyes one last time with such panic behind them. And I said, mom, it is okay. I'll be okay. You've done a great job. She closed her eyes. The link in the chain left that day. The chain I never thought could be broken was gone. Thank you. for this week's episode folks this is two-door cinema club behind me now and we just heard from lucy linden now don't forget the risk book is out there in the world and if you get it before july 21st that will count toward our first week sales which are absolutely essential so Run out and get it this week. Call your library. Uh, call your bookstore. Tell them to order it. Get copies for friends. Remember, it's out ebook, audiobook, uh, paperback. Make sure to go to Amazon and give us a great review there because the more reviews you have on Amazon, that makes a huge impression for your sales. And uh, yeah, if the book does well, we will be coming out with another one by 2020. I'm predicting. <laughs> I mean, the long story short is this. We are a very small and very independent podcast, which has no sort of corporate presence, right? So we rely on a small cult following of an audience. And this is the first project we've done with a bigger sort of company that can market and publicize something. If this book is a hit, if it really starts selling and catches on, something will have finally brought some attention to this podcast and helped us reach a wider audience. So we have so much hope 
in this book. And it's a book that we love very dearly and believe in. So go get it wherever books are sold or at theriskbook.com. Now I'm going to list the incredibly long list of cities we're coming to in the next two months to celebrate the book's release and to put on brand new Risk shows. Come to these shows, pitch us for these shows, come to the book signings, and get your book signed and hear the some of the stories read. All right, here we go. On July 17th, we are at Caveat in New York City. That is the official book release party. We're going to have stories being read there by people who are in the book. That's going to be fabulous. On July 19th, we're going to be at Harvard Bookstore. That's a book signing and a book reading. On July 20th, we will be in Boston. Arts at the Armory is the name of the venue there. On July 26th, we'll be in San Francisco at Book Passage. That is a book signing and book reading. And on July 27th, we'll be doing a show in San Francisco at Swedish American Hall. On July 28th, we are at the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles. That is a another where people who are in the book are going to be reading from the book there at the Bootleg Theater on July 28th. On August 1st, we're in Queens, New York at Astoria Bookshop. That's August 1st, Astoria Bookshop. On August 3rd, we're in Detroit at the Magic Bag. We're still taking pictures for that. August 3rd, Detroit at the Magic Bag. August 9th, we're in LaGrange, Illinois at Anderson's Bookshop. That's a book signing, book reading. On August 10th, we're in Chicago at Lincoln Hall. Still taking pictures for that. On August 11th, Minneapolis at Brave New Workshop. Still taking pictures for that. August 16th, Washington, D.C. at Kramer Books and Afterwards Cafe. That's a book signing, book reading. And on August 17th, Baltimore, we're doing a show at Creative Alliance. On August 18th, we're in D.C. at the Black Cat, the Baltimore, D.C. All the shows I'm mentioning from now on, we're still taking pitches. On uh, September 6th, we're in Portland, Oregon. September 7th, Seattle, Washington. September 8th, Vancouver. And then on September 20th, we're at NYU Bookstore doing a book signing and uh, book reading. So come out and see the shows. Pitch us by going to risk-show.com slash submissions and go get that book. Don't forget, we also teach storytelling and do corporate workshops at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Let's get this started, go. People who have ordered the Risk Book. People who have ordered the Risk Book. There's Nicole Lockwood. And Miriam Yu. There's Valentina. Meliori Vizzini. And Hans Burby. There's Ellen. The Wrath. And Sean Haugie. 
There's Victoria Fadley and Rafika La Rosa. There's Hyde and Skyler and Kayla and Jesse Frazier. Nolan Cash Simmons and Tracy McMullen. Megan Murphy and Leah Spasova. There's Casey Pizzer and Johanna Parker. There's Courtney Gaskins and Sarah Crump. There's Adam Middleton and Adam Lacognina. There's Rick Evo and Grady Shutt. There's Lynn Tooley and Hallie Keegan. Chris Jackson is one of them. Chris J and Tony A. There's Jacob Ward and Corey and Pitts. Bear Snyder, who ordered a copy for Raquel Walker and wants to remind her to change the batteries in her vibrator. There's Angela Curtis. Cecilia Fry There's Robert Kogel and Jake Wheeler Happy birthday Sarah Blake Isbell and Jeremy Rolls There's Rika Subanek and Axel Estabal Melanie Carolina Berger and Jesse Sturdivant and John T. Bowles. That's it. <laughs>